So we're going to study the minor prophets this semester. I've actually never preached on the minor prophets for a whole semester. I've done a couple sermons on some passages in the minor prophets, but I'm really excited about this. But as I think about doing a series on the minor prophets, the thought occurred to me, um, some of you may be thinking, isn't the idea of prophets, of people speaking on God's behalf, a little bit crazy? Um, And I don't know about you, but I've had some conversations with people who were convinced God was speaking to them. Some people that had real mental problems, you know. I remember one time a lady, really I was driving home one time in West Nashville, and as I saw this lady up ahead, uh, all of a sudden she just laid down in front of my car, and she was hearing voices, and you know, there can be some really serious kinds of stuff. But not only that, not only people, you know, that would say God's talked to me and told me to do this, but even some of you might think, you know, one of the problems in our world is all these people that think God has told us what to do in these different religious books, like the Bible or the Koran. And so the idea of somebody speaking on God's behalf, or even the idea that God tells us what to do and how to live, it's not just crazy, it maybe is even a little dangerous. And I don't know where you're at with that. Maybe that's not your um, issue, but I bet you know people who think that. And so I want to speak to that issue a little bit and talk about why um, Christianity believes that the idea of God speaking is axiomatic. Is that an okay word to use? It's such a basic principle that if you get rid of it, you don't have Christianity. I want to suggest that the idea of God speaking is not as crazy as you might think, and is actually not just not crazy, it's axiomatic to what Christianity teaches about God, about you, and about the world that we live in. In fact, Christianity says that you can't make sense of God or mankind or the world, the world that we actually live in, apart from understanding that God is, and that he is not silent. Maybe um, some of you have heard of a man named Francis Schaeffer. Anybody? Started to miss a few of you. Okay, you, you, you know, your parents have done well, or maybe a, a teacher or something. Francis Schaeffer is a very important person in the history of Christianity in the 20th century. Um, he actually was a pastor in St. Louis who began, became very discouraged in the 50s about a lot of hypocrisy that he saw among particularly some leaders in the evangelical church that had big radio ministries uh, and yet were leading lives that were really not good at all. And he basically decided to take a job with an organization called Child Evangelism Fellowship in Switzerland, um, in some ways just to kind of get out of here and get some distance to really think about whether he thought Christianity could be real at all in light of what he'd experienced. And maybe some of you have been through that, or maybe some of you are in that. Um, I, I find a lot of students at Belmont have had backgrounds like that and, and maybe don't even know what to do with that. Well, what Schaefer did is he went to uh, Switzerland and he paced around in a bar, or sorry, in a barn 
He probably went to a bar, too. I don't think he had to go to a bar because he was in Switzerland, so he could you know, drink whatever he wanted, I suppose. But he, uh, he paced around in a barn. He writes about this in, in some of his books. He paced around in a barn for like six months just yelling at God and, and basically kind of going back to square one. What do I actually believe? What can I actually know? What can I actually trust? And then he ended up um, getting in some interesting conversations. His, his kids at this point were in college, and they were going to college at different places there in Europe, and would bring some of their friends home because actually they lived in Switzerland and they had a chalet and it was a nice place to come for Christmas break and go skiing. But some of these students, this was by now the 60s, and a lot of the kind of counterculture, a lot of ideas, a lot of philosophies and people asking questions was going on. And this, this guy, Schaefer, who himself had really come... Um, to the point where he wasn't sure what he could believe anymore, as he himself kind of came back to faith, he found himself very sympathetic to a lot of young people and the kinds of things they were wrestling with. And so he began to talk to them. His basic principle was an honest question deserves an honest response. And a lot of people have been very influenced um, by him. A lot of your professors actually um, have been influenced by him. Though you may not know his name, he published a number of books and is really one of the guys that helped, particularly American Christians, understand this thing called biblical world and life view, which is the idea that all of life matters to God and that every vocation is a way to serve God, that you don't have to serve as a missionary or a pastor to, to really serve God, right? In some ways, even the, the university that you're at if you're at Belmont, um, has a legacy and a debt to owe, uh, that they owe to Francis Schaeffer, even though you don't know his name. Well, he wrote a very famous book in the late 60s. And this was a book that you could see people backpacking around Europe um, reading this book. And it's, it was titled this, He is There and He is Not Silent. And what Schaeffer said is with all the questions about reality, who is man? What is mankind? What is morality? How can we know what's true? The two things that Christianity offers to the world that, again, are axiomatic are God is and he is not silent. You can't separate the belief that God has spoken truly to mankind from Christianity and still have Christianity. And the idea that God has spoken truly to mankind is actually responsible for most of the good gifts that Christianity has given to the world. Now, I know you may think, oh, really? What good gifts has Christianity given to the world? It's given a lot of bad things to the world, a lot of religious wars and a lot of persecution, all this kind of stuff. But it's actually true that there are a number of ideas, particularly if you look in the early church and you look at the ideas of the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, and you look at the religions of the East, and you look at Christianity... Uh, Tim Keller, in his new book that we're going to read on Fridays, if you'd like to join us, um, has this to say. Judaism and Christianity gave many things to the world that the Greeks and the religions of the East did not believe. And here's a few of them. Number one, the body is important. That's not an idea that comes from Eastern religions, philosophy, or from Greco-Roman culture. It's something that a lot of people now take for granted, but it came from Christianity. History is going somewhere. That's number two, that it's not just cyclical. Three, that the individual is important. 
And all are equally important because they're all made in the image of God. Now, I know that Christians haven't always proclaimed and lived consistently with these ideas, but this is itself one of the good gifts that Christianity has given to the world. Four, human choice is significant. We're not just the pawns of the stars and the fates. Five, emotions and feelings are good. These things, the philosopher Charles Taylor points out, are the basis for modern society. But when they're pulled out of their biblical context and made into absolutes, they're made into idols. And Nietzsche pointed out, that these five things all work in a Christian universe with a Christian understanding of a God who speaks, a God who is, and a God who speaks truly. But if you really believe secularism, you can't insist on any of these five beliefs, even though most people in this room would say, well, of course those five things are true. But those five things are true only in a universe that believes that there is a God, an infinite personal God, who speaks and can be known. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. It's not just that we have to be afraid of the idea of God speaking, and I know that people have misused that and have done a lot of horrific things in the name of God told me to do this. But the fact is, the God who is, is not silent, is absolutely crucial to understand not just Christianity, but to understand you and to understand the world you live in. So let me, pull, let me, let me uh, pray, and then I'll hopefully be able to kind of show this to you as we go through some scripture passages tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you that we can come even and have a word to read, to wrestle with, to hear. We thank you that you've made us human beings to be beings who are verbal with story-shaped souls. We thank you for that. We pray that even tonight you will help us to understand some of the amazing and tremendous implications of who you are and who you've made us to be. We ask to that end that you'd send your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may, the Bible begins with the idea that God speaks the creation into being. And when God creates mankind, male and female, he places them in a garden. But he doesn't just put them in a garden to kind of figure out what in the world are we to do. He tells them. And I want you to understand that the the Christian idea is that God is kind to put mankind in a garden. He is kind and good to give mankind good work to do. He told Adam and Eve that they were to take the garden, which is the cultivated part of creation, and they were to extend it to the ends of the earth. In other words, they were to beautify, or you could think of it this way, they were to bring out all of the God-glorifying potential that he built into his creation. And not only did he tell them this, so that they weren't wondering, why are we here? What are we supposed to do? God tells them. He doesn't leave it hidden. And he meets and talks with them regularly. You find this after they've sinned against God. It says that God came 
in the cool of the day, as was his regular practice. In other words, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. My wife loves to go walk with people at Radnor Lake. Anybody ever walked at Radnor Lake? It's a great place to walk and have uh, conversation. And that's the picture you have. The very first picture of who God is and how he relates to mankind is going on a nice long walk in the cool of the day, which is when people can share their hearts, relate, build, nurture relationships. Christianity teaches that to understand God and mankind and the world we live in, we have to start with the fact that we were made by a God who speaks and who made us in his image to be verbal beings, to speak back to him and to speak to each other. And as a lot of people have realized, you can't even think without language. Think about your thoughts. They're language, right? They're in language. I, had a, I went to a place called Berkeley College of Music. And one of the cool things about Berkeley, at least when I was there, I don't know if it's the same, but it was 50% international students. Highest proportion of international students of any college in the country when I was there in the 80s. And um, so you got to meet all kinds of interesting people with all kinds of interesting perspectives. And I remember um, a, a, some of my friends had this, this guy that came over to their apartment all the time who was from France. And one time they were asking him about just what it was like to, you know, to be in America and to be you know, from France and to have French be his native tongue. And he said you know, that it took usually a couple, three weeks of being back in America before he began to dream in English. And I thought, that, isn't that interesting? Maybe some of you have experienced that or known people that have had the experience that even our dreams are verbal, language. It may be French, it may be English, but we dream and we think in language framework. Not only that, but we resonate with stories. And Christianity says this is because we are made by an even greater personal being. I believe the Christian understanding is the only one that really makes sense of who you are. If you believe that we live in a closed universe where everything that exists is a matter of time plus chance plus matter, then you have a hard time explaining why we are the way we are, particularly why language is the way it is with us and why we have story-shaped souls. Well, not only that, you have a hard time explaining things like morality and love and even the way you want to try to explain things you can't account for in a closed universe. But if you are open to the belief that there is more to life than strict secularism can explain, and you take a good look at mankind, one of the things you realize is that verbal, verbalness is basic to who we are. We were born to use language. And Christianity says that's because ultimately reality is personal. We have a God who speaks, who made human beings in his image. And God speaks because he wants to reveal himself, but also because relationships are nurtured through communication 
And he made us for a relationship with him and his others. And that's the picture you see where he walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. I want you to understand God doesn't just give them rules and say, you just need to do this and I'm going to go off and do whatever I want to do. No, language, verbal communication, God speaking is to the end that they would know him better and that they would have a rich, intimate relationship with him. You know, it's hard to get to know someone if they never speak. It really is. And, and for most ancient peoples that were not part of the Judeo-Christian tradition, cut off from God's word, most of their religion and their ways of trying to relate to the gods was all about guessing. How do you appease the gods who don't speak? Well, you try lots of different things. You throw things against the wall and you hope they stick. You hope that maybe, you know, this bad thing doesn't happen. And if this bad thing doesn't happen, then you try it again. But then what if the next time the bad thing does happen? And that's really one of the dilemmas of the ancient world, is how can you know what's wrong and how to fix it unless the gods speak? Now, here's what's interesting. I work with college students. This is now my 21st year working with students at Belmont. And, you know, one of the obsessions of ancient people, of all the religious, actually not even just religious, of all the ancient texts that we have, do you know what the dominant subject matter of them is? Of all the ancient texts we have, the dominant subject matter is how to know the will of the gods. It was the obsession of ancient peoples. And there's all kinds of fascinating techniques that ancient people uh, engaged in to try to figure it out. They cast lots. You might recognize that in the Bible. That happens sometimes. But they also did things like cut up animals and look at their entrails. It was a very popular one. They looked at the stars, right? There are all kinds of things. But what all these things have in common is you had to have a certain degree of skill or you had to figure out the trick to know what was true. You know, I think it's the obsession of a lot of modern young people as well. What is God's will for my life? And here's what's fascinating and a bit tragic, is that most of the Christian books and most of the teaching I've heard in the Christian church about how to know God's will resembles paganism more than it resembles Christianity. Because it basically teaches you you've got to figure out some little techniques, which is, in a way, saying that God is hiding his will from us unless we can become clever enough or skilled enough to figure it out. Now, why do I bring that up? Am I just trying to stir up the water as well? Maybe. But I, I really, here's what I want you to see, the connection. What you believe about God's character matters a whole heck of a lot. And even things that seem like very spiritual can actually end up misrepresenting God. The key thing to understand about the God of the Bible is that he speaks and reveals himself to us. He doesn't hide from us and, and sort of make us try to figure out what he wants us to do with our life. He tells us. He tells us what we were made for. He tells us how we're to live. He tells us how we're to be restored in relationship with him. He doesn't leave us wondering about all those things. And I hope that you understand that and that the way you relate to God is consistent with that basic 
fact of his character. Because there is a lot of teaching that goes under the name of Christianity that ends up basically portraying God as one who plays games with us. And that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is, and he speaks. All right, well, let's look at how the speaking theme develops. And now we're going to look at Moses. If you want to look at Exodus chapter 3 and 4, I'm going to pull some thoughts out of there. But you probably know the story, the basic gist of the story. When God begins his great work of deliverance in the Old Testament, and when you look at the Psalms and you look at uh, all the various, you know, the prophets, the great redemptive story in the Old Testament is the Exodus, where God gets his people, his enslaved people, out of Egypt and brings them into the promised land, okay? That's the great picture of redemption and deliverance in the Old Testament. And the way God begins it is by speaking. So the creation is about speaking, and redemption is about speaking as well. God speaks to Moses. Now, Moses isn't looking for God. Remember, he's kind of made a mess of his life. He struck down this Egyptian, and then he hightailed it out of Egypt, and he went out into the desert. And he's out in the desert, and he sees a burning bush that's not being consumed. And that's a pretty wondrous thing. So he goes over to investigate. And then, if you follow the story, an even more wondrous thing happens. God speaks from the bush. And now the bush is not just something to kind of stare at and be like, oh, that's pretty cool. Now it's time to take off his shoes because he's on holy ground. Because it's one thing to see a bush that's burning and not being consumed. It's a whole other thing for God to speak directly to mankind. And not just to any man, but to a man who's made a mess of things and certainly doesn't have a very good resume for being a savior. And Moses asks, how can I go? I mean, it's one thing for me to see a burning bush and be convinced that, God, you're speaking. Something's going on here that's not your everyday occurrence. But how can I go back to the Israelites and tell them that you have spoken to me? How can I assure them that I am really speaking on your behalf? And here you get to the question that is one of the most important questions you'll ever wrestle with which is the question of epistemology. How do you know what you know? I hope that freshman seminar helped you with that question. I'm not sure everybody gets helped by that question from that class, but that is the, the goal, the intent. Because a lot of people have never thought about that question. Okay, And it's a really important question. It was an important question for the ancient world. And what does God say to Moses? He says, go tell the Israelites what? Tell them I am that I am has sent you. This is the covenant name of God. What does that mean, the covenant name? That means the name God has given for the people in a special relationship with him. Alec Moyer, a great Old Testament scholar who went to be with the Lord just a couple months ago, suggests that perhaps Israel already knew that name, though Moses, being raised in Pharaoh's household, did not. And so when he goes and they ask him, how can we know that God sent you? Tell them the personal name by which I relate to my people. And throw down your staff. Because I am going to do wonders that will authenticate you as my spokesman. And you see this pattern regularly in the Bible. 
Now, Moses protests. He says, I can't speak. I'm slow of tongue, right? And a lot of people think maybe he was a stutterer or, you know, he just wasn't very eloquent. And here's an interesting thing. God says, well, I'm going to have your brother speak on your behalf. And there's this fascinating picture that God uses there that tells us something important about what it means to be a prophet. He says, Aaron will... Aaron... Um, or Sorry, here's who says it. You, Moses, will be like God to Aaron. What does that mean? That means... Aaron will speak on your behalf just as you, Moses, speak on my behalf. What you see is this incredibly close connection. So what you learn here about a prophet and the prophet Moses, the preeminent prophet in the Old Testament, the paradigm of what it means to speak on God's behalf in the Old Testament is Moses. And Moses your relationship to me is the same as the way the relationship of Aaron will be to you. He is to speak on your behalf. He's not to improvise. He's not to leave out anything. Just like when my prophets speak for me, you need to speak every word. And when my people hear my word, they need to obey every word. And kings need to obey every word and not discard or ignore any of them. It's a really big deal that God speaks and every word matters. And later in Exodus 33, there's this fascinating picture. I love this picture. The Bible says that the thing about Moses was that God, unlike other people, God spoke to Moses. Now, your translations say, face to face, like a friend. Actually, the Hebrew is more picturesque. The Hebrew actually says, mouth to mouth. We don't translate it that way because that would give maybe the wrong impression. But it's an incredibly intimate picture. Do you see that? It's an incredibly intimate picture. In other words, God speaks to Moses in an intimate, relational way. And if I could pull back and, and say, why does that matter? Listen, I think one of the real challenges for Christians in our day is for them to understand and to help other people understand that God, when he speaks, speaks in an intimate, relational way. God does not speak as a distant, authoritarian Dictator. But I wonder sometimes when I hear Christians speak to people outside of the church, I think the way they represent God, many people would get the impression that the God they serve and the God they speak for is just mad at everything all the time. The words that we use, the tone that we use represents God. To a watching world. God speaks mouth to mouth, face to face, like a friend. And that shouldn't surprise us because that's what he did in the garden, right? God didn't say, okay, well, I tried that speaking relationally, intimately in the garden. It didn't work. So now I'm just going to tell people what to do. And I'm going to shout at them from on high. No, he never backs down from his desire to have an intimate relationship and for words, his word, to be at the heart of how that relationship is nurtured. Even when God speaks hard words, the words are designed to lead to the restoration of sanity that the Bible calls repentance. Hosea 6, we actually, uh, you know, I don't know if we actually kind of referenced this in one of the songs. We t there was one of the songs that talked about the mist, the morning mist. 
One of my favorite passages in the prophet Hosea, I'm sure we'll probably actually look at this later this semester. Uh, God says to his people, what can I do with you, Ephraim? Ephraim is like a, a lover pet name for Israel that God uses. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I kill you with the words of my mouth. Now, notice that. You might think, oh, I don't like that passage. I'm not tattooing that on my arm, you know. <laughs> um, it's just not, you know. But do you see the connection? You know, the jealousy of God is a really precious truth. A lot of people just dismiss it out of hand. No, God loves Ephraim. That's like his nickname for his people. And and you almost seem like, what can I do with you? Your love disappears just like the morning mist. As soon as the sun goes up, comes up, it's gone. Therefore, I send my prophets to cut you to pieces. Because in your arrogance and your self-righteousness, you're so far from my heart. Even when he speaks hard words, they're words that are about restoring and nurturing rich, intimate relationship. Is that how you understand the Bible? You see, God's words through his prophets reveal his character. And there's some amazing pictures of his character revealed in the minor prophets. And for a lot of people, they've never read them. They've never read them. Listen, in RUF, in the course of three or four years, if you come to every single meeting we ever have, you really won't get very much of the Bible. We can't cover that much of it. So we try to kind of touch down in different places to sort of whet your appetite. And that's what I hope to do. Because the minor prophets have some amazingly beautiful pictures of God's character revealed through his gracious words. One more kind of thing I want to get at here, though. God speaks to Moses mouth to mouth. He doesn't just speak to relay information. He speaks to restore and nurture relationship. Yet not everybody wants this. And a big part of understanding the Bible is to understand there is an enemy of your soul who wants to rob God's word from you. And it starts even back in the garden. The first attack that Satan makes is upon the word of God and the veracity and the faithfulness and the truthfulness of God's word. And he raises this question. Has God really said the epistemology question again, isn't it? And all over and over and over, you see this ongoing issue. Where you see it most closely is the whole issue of false prophets. Because the Bible speaks a lot about this. And it raises this question, how can we know if God has really called someone to speak on his behalf? And here I have good news. God doesn't leave us to wonder about this either. He graciously provides for his people. And here's the way it works. God brings his people out of Egypt through Moses, and he brings them to the mountain to worship. This is actually what God had told Moses to tell Pharaoh. Let my people go so that they can worship me on this mountain. Not just so I can show off how powerful I am. I want my people to be free to worship me. Let them go that they may worship me. Okay? Eventually through all the various parts of the story, God's people come to the mountain, just as God had promised Moses way back at the burning bush. And God speaks from the mountain, and all Israel hears him, but it freaks them out. And the people plead with Moses, Moses, you go up on the mountain and talk to God, and then come back and tell us what he said. 
because we cannot stand to hear God. Do you really think you want to hear from God? <laughs> you know? Sometimes I think we just are a little naive and we think, if God would just tell me what to do, then I'd do it. Really? <laughs> There's a lot of things that are really clear in the Bible that I don't think you or me are really interested in doing. But that's maybe a topic for another day. Well, here's what happens. Moses does go up on the mountain, and he receives the law, but he doesn't just receive the Ten Commandments, right? Forget what you've seen in the movies. God gives him all of the law, and part of what's included in that are instructions for how to judge a prophet in the future. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, God says false prophets are going to come, and when they come, they are to be put to death. And you might think, well, that's a little harsh. Yeah, it is. You know why? Because the truth of God's words are so important that to distort them is a really big deal. That's what you should get from that. It's a really big deal. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 14 to 22, God says, how will you know if someone who claims to speak in my name really is my prophet? Okay, you know if a false prophet comes, you're to put them to death. How are you going to know if someone who says, I'm speaking on God's behalf is a false prophet? Here's what God says. The prophet has to be authenticated by short-term, verifiable predictions that are 100% true. Now listen, you can get on different crazy TV channels, and you can see self-proclaimed prophets that will say, somebody out there has a skin disease. And I see, you know, I don't know, you guys are too young to remember. We had this show when I was little called Romper Room. Anybody know about Romper Room? Miss Sally was on Romper Room. And she would, at the end of every show, she'd look in this magic mirror, and they'd do this weird little twisty psychedelic thing with the mirror. It would, like, get all swirly. And then she'd say, I see Johnny and Billy and Susie. And, and she would do this at the end of every show. And I, I just... I wonder how long it took me before I realized that she was just making up these names. But I think sometimes people that proclaim themselves as prophets, that's what they're doing. They're like little parlor tricks. That's not what biblical prophets do ever. They don't make good guesses. They offer short-term, short 100% verifiable predictions. In Jeremiah, for instance, Jeremiah tells a guy, in six months, you're going to drop dead. And then the Bible records, in six months, that guy dropped dead. So that when Jeremiah says, I am going to make a new covenant with you, Israel. Even though you're in exile and it looks like all hope is lost, I'm going to put, make a new covenant with you. How are they going to know that when they're in exile? Because Jeremiah has been authenticated as a spokesman for God. Isaiah actually starts with like 20 chapters of short-term verifiable predictions made about all the surrounding nations so that God's people could see this guy is truly speaking on God's behalf. So when he talks about how the virgin is going to be with child and how Emmanuel, God with us, one day will come, you can know that that's true. And then Moses, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, God promises an even greater prophet to come. Listen to these words. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. So Moses is saying, look, when you guys told me to go up on the mountain and talk to God because you couldn't handle it at Mount Horeb, this is what God said. Not only are you going to have a way to figure out who true prophets are 
to keep love, you know, love alive, to keep hope alive with real truth. But I'm going to send one day a prophet like unto me, one who will be so intimate with God that as he will say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. One that will have such a love for my word that he will say, it's my meat and drink to do the will of my Father in heaven, no matter what, no matter where it takes me, even to death on a hellish cross. That's the heart of the story that we're going to see through these minor prophets. Jesus comes as the word to dwell among us. And that shouldn't surprise us because God's words have always been about nurturing and restoring a beautiful, rich, intimate relationship. That's why the word comes to dwell among us. But then what do you find? Even speaking, even speaking from the Son of God is not enough. Even Jesus, the word of God incarnate, had to do more than speak. And in this, God's character is revealed even more clearly. Because God doesn't just speak to restore us to himself. Jesus dies to restore us to rich, intimate relationship with the Father. And the cross amplifies what God has been saying from the very beginning. I will be your God. You will be my people. And there's nothing that can stop that. The cross is the exclamation point of everything God has been saying. You can believe it. And in the sacraments, you know, we're getting ready to celebrate next year the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. One of the beautiful pictures that the Reformers um, spoke about a lot was the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They called them visible words because the sacraments preach the gospel in a picture. And God knows that you need sermons in pictures and sermons in words, and the two actually help each other and help us understand them. The cross is the exclamation point of God. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And that's good. And I hope you'll stay with us this semester as we explore this in all these different, multifaceted, beautiful ways that God says this through the minor prophets. Let's pray together.